Well, for those of you who may be our guests or those of you who are just catching up in our series of, of uh, studying the book of Habakkuk, where we left off last week was with this verse one. And just to sort of catch you up with the flow of the book, at the very beginning, if you were to read this uh, and go back and study it, in, he, in, in Habakkuk chapter one, the prophet Habakkuk comes to God and says, God, look at the unruliness of your people here in Judah. Look at how they've turned away from you. Look at the unfaithfulness. Won't you do something? Where are you? How long am I going to have to wait for you to do something about the wicked? of your people. And God responds to the prophet Habakkuk and says, oh, you're waiting for me to do something? Well, good news. I'm going to do something. I'm even now raising up the Chaldeans uh, who will eventually come and overthrow Judah. They're going to lay waste to your cities and towns, and they're going to take you into captivity. So if you were nervous, I wasn't going to do anything about the wickedness. Rest at ease. I'm going to do something. I'm raising up your enemies to destroy you. And so Habakkuk comes back and says, uh, well, that's not exactly what I was thinking. You know, like I was thinking maybe lightning bolts or something else. But he comes back and says, how can you, oh God, do this thing? How can you use those who are less righteous than us to punish us? You're a God who cannot look at evil. You're a God who is everlasting. You're a God who is holy. This, this is not in line with your character. And our study last week was about those moments where we feel like we can use what we feel like we know about God to sort of hold him accountable. And that there is a, a better way, which is to say, there are things I know about God as he's revealed them, but I always want to hold loosely to the fact that God is bigger than what I know, and he's bigger than what I can comprehend. He's bigger than my individual interpretation of events, or even who I think he is. That we have to hold that loosely because God is unsearchable in his ways. He's unknowable in his love, that we will spend our entire lives sort of unspooling the depth and the majesty of God. At the end of that time when Habakkuk makes his second complaint, he then says there in verse one, I'm gonna go to my watchtower and I'm gonna wait to see what God says to me. We just read it. I'm gonna wait to see how God responds and I'm gonna pay attention to my own response to God's response. Remember we talked last week about the fact that it's important not only to pay attention to what God says, but to pay attention to your posture and your response in response to what he says. And now as we pick up the text, we see God respond to Habakkuk's second complaint. There are a couple of things I want you to see in his response. We're not going to look at the whole thing this morning. In fact, we're going to break it up into two weeks. We'll look at the second half or this, actually the second like three-fifths of this next week. But I wanted to stop here in verse four because I think it's important enough to just look at the way God begins this. What God says in the beginning of this response is he, he replies, essentially I got four main headings this morning. He replies with instruction, expectation, encouragement, and assurance. We see that even just in these three verses we're studying this morning. He starts with instruction. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. I, I, uh, I think it's really interesting that when we seek God, we said a couple of weeks ago that God reveals himself to those who seek him. That is absolutely true. Not only is that true, many times when God reveals himself, he reveals himself with instruction. He calls us to move. It's interesting how often we sort of avoid listening to God or paying attention to what God might say because we know this. We know that when God responds to us, many times his call to us is, you got to live a little bit differently. I want you to do something. It's seldom a time where he just sort of teaches us philosophical ideas or theor theoretical truths about who he is. Most of the time when God replies, he replies with some sort of instruction, some call to obedience. 
And that may be why over time uh, you may start to tune God out. It may be why you're going through a season in your own life of feeling like you can't hear God because over time we sort of get to the place. I mean, this happens in my house a lot. There are these moments where I'm, I'm just minding my own business doing, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sorting music on Spotify or whatever. And then my wife's like, are you listening to this? And I'll be like, uh... No, not at all. I have no, you know, and she will have been having a conversation with my kids or whatever where she wants me to be involved, right? She wants me to actually be a part of the family. Uh, she wants me to help parent. She wants me to sort of jump in. And I, I have tuned out. And in some ways, uh, I'm guilty of sort of tuning out sometimes because I know that if I listen and if I engage, that that engagement will require something of me. Does that make sense? We do. I'm not, that's confession, I guess, in some ways. You guys pray for me, right? Um, we all do this in different relationships. We have this moment where we tune out. I want you to see that when God replies to Habakkuk, he doesn't say, hey, let me just tell you more stuff about myself. The first thing he says here in this response is, there's something to do. And that's, that's common with God. There are lots of examples. Our whole study in the Gospel of John, Love and Trouble, was about the fact that when the love of God is introduced to our lives, it is disruptive. It doesn't leave us where it finds us. God looks at Habakkuk and says, I have something I want you to do. And what he instructs him to do is to write down the vision. Now, it's interesting, uh, theologians and commentators will argue about what part of this is actually the vision or if any of this is the vision. Does Habakkuk really give us the vision here or does he just give us so, some of it, the highlights? We don't, we don't actually know. But God says to him, I want you to write it down and I want you to make it plain and I want you to put it on tablets so that it will last, so that it can be utilized, so that it can you know, be taken and run with. We'll talk about that in a second. The first thing he says is write it down. What God is looking for is that he wants this word to be more than just something Habakkuk sort of remembers via his own limited memory. He says, put it down. Put it down on tablets. Write it down. I want it to be remembered. I want it to be shareable. I want it to be public. I think about the passage in Romans chapter 15 that talks about God writing things down that we might remember them. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. God says, I want you to put this down and I want you to make it plain. Not only do I want you to write it down so that it's memorable, so that it that will last, so that it's public, other people can see it, but I also want you to simplify it. I want you to keep it simple, stupid, right? I want you to make it plain. I want you to make it plain. I love what this says about God. Not only does he want us to be able to read it and, and remember it, not only does he want it to be shared, but he wants it to be clear. I don't know whether you know this or not, but as a person who teaches God's word, clarity is the only goal right? The only goal is clarity. The goal uh, for a guy who preaches the Bible can't be to try and move an audience, right? I can't, you can't be trying to get people to be stirred or emotional. Those are false goals. And if I set those as my goals, then there is always a temptation to be manipulative, right? You've probably seen people who are manipulative in their public speaking. The goal of somebody who is expositing the Bible is not to try and move a room. If the room is moved, that's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. If people are convicted of sin, if people are drawn to repentance, if people are inspired to go and live a different way, that's the Holy Spirit's work. The goal of the preacher is clarity, just clarity, to make God's word clear. That's success. I go home at the end of the day, and I don't think, did people like it? Did people not like it? Did a lot of people sing loud afterwards? What? I don't think about any of those things. I think, was I true to what God has said? Clarity's the goal, right? God wants it clear. I love the encouragement that I find even in just understanding something about the revelation of God here. That he doesn't want us to be confused. 
There are things about God that are mysterious. There are things about God that are difficult for us to comprehend because of how vast he is. But the goal of God is that what he has said would be plain to us. Take comfort in that. God wants it to be memorable. He wants it to be shareable. He wants it to be simple, understandable, and clear. He tells him here in Habakkuk chapter 2, I want you to make it plain on tablets. I have people occasionally who will ask me why I don't use a, a paper, leather-bound Bible, right? And I use this tablet because God says so right here in Habakkuk chapter 2. It's just, this is prophecy about Apple, apparently, Right? No, that's not even, okay, so I, took, I, I used that joke, but that was a joke that Jeff Lilly came up with this week in the middle of our teaching meeting. I'll give him the credit. He gets up here and teaches, and he just makes fun of my tattoos and stuff, but when I get up here, I'm going to give him credit for good jokes, because uh, I'm, I'm a nicer person. Uh, what was I talking about? Instruction, clarity. Yeah, we're getting away from clarity. Thank you. God says, write it. Make it plain, put it on tablets, put it on tablets, something that's lasting, something that, that, will, that will be easily seen, something lasting, broader than your voice, something that's accessible to other people. The, the, the idea here of tablets, we've seen God write on tablets before, the idea here of tablets was probably something made of wood, but something that could be put up in the middle of a town, or something that would be put up and posted where people could walk by and see it. It wouldn't just be you have to come into contact with Habakkuk in order to understand it. And God tells us why he wants that clarity. He tells Habakkuk, why do I want you to write it down and make it plain and put it on tablets that will be lasting? He has all of those things for a reason. Here's not only his instruction, but now we move to his expectation. He says, make it plain, put it on tablets, write it down what? So he may run who reads it. There's his expectation. Instruction and expectation. He says, I want people to be able to read it and understand it so that they will move. Now there is, uh, by the way, the book of Habakkuk has a lot of passages that are very complicated in the original language. The Hebrew here is very complex. And so there are a lot of different people who argue about a lot of different things. You may have, uh, in some of your translations, it might say something like, write it down, put it on tablets so that a person can read it while running, right? And the picture for some, or, and, and there are some commentators even who will say, what God's saying here is he wants you to be able to read it on the go, you know, like be able to sort of carry it with you and as you're running, and maybe that has to do with exile, and maybe that has to do with the idea that the Chaldeans will come in and they're going to be taking everybody away from Judah and taking them into captivity, so I want you to put it on tablets so they can take it with them on the go. I think that's less likely what God is saying here, as, as I've looked at the original language and done some studying here, I think it's less likely that God's saying, hey, I want you to be able to read this while you're jogging, and I think it has more to do with the fact that God says, I want it to be plain, and I want it to be clear, and I want it to be memorable, because I want you to do something with it. I like the way ESV has translated this. I think it's more accurate, that he who reads it may run. And the word there that's, uh, that's talking about reads is, also, is the idea of receiving a call or, or hearing a herald. So there's also the sense in this in which when we understand what God has said, when we understand the promises of God, when we understand the proclamations of God, we're not just supposed to sit on those things, we're supposed to carry them. Carry them both for our own good and carry them for the good of other people as well. That you'll read and understand what God has said and that you won't just sit on it, but that you'll move with it. That it changes the way that both you run your life and it also then is something that you would then carry on to other people. There's a call here to, to herald this truth. It's not unlike what James says in James chapter 1 verse 22 where it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I love the the reference to perseverance here. It's very similar to the verse we just read in Romans that says, what has been written has been written so that you will understand what God has said in future times, that you will endure, and that you will have hope based on the clarity that God has given. God replies to Habakkuk and he says, I want you to be clear. Not only that, there's, there's instruction there. He says, my expectation is that those who read it will do something with it. I think it's probably worth just slowing down here for a second and asking ourselves again, as it, it's never too often, to ask ourselves, when's the last time you did something with what God showed you in his word? When's the last time you moved in response to something that you learned? When's the last time you sat through a Sunday school class or an adult fellowship or you listened to a podcast or you, you, you studied God's word on your own and the Holy Spirit prompted you and you moved with it? I want you to see here that God had an expectation that we would not only hear what he says, but that we would run with it, right? That we would take it and go. It's why God wants things to be clear. It's why God wants it to be memorable. It's why he wants it to be lasting. There is instruction here as well as a call for us to move with it. We think about, uh, I was thinking about John 20. If you remember our study in John, John says at the very end of his book in John 20, 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, I wrote this whole book, but I wrote that it would, that it would change you, Right? That you would believe that faith would be the byproduct. God says to Habakkuk, write these things down, make them plain, put them on tablets so he may run. It's God's expectation that we will move with this, that we'll hear his voice as we go. And that's, that's important also. The movement is important because, again, what God is going to say next in this sort of encouragement section in the next verse is that there is going to be some movement. There's going to be a different sort of a clock than what you're used to. God says to Habakkuk, I want it to be plain. I want my people to hear me. I want them to understand it. I want it to be lasting because they're going to need it if if they're going to be on the go and still faithful. Here's what he says next in verse 3. The reason why we need it plain and the reason why we need to run when we read it, verse 3, is he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come it will not delay. There's a bunch of things that God says here in this next section, this encouragement to us. He looks at us and he says, hey, it might seem slow to you. The fulfillment of my promises, the completion of the things that I've said, my answer to you might seem slow. I like the awareness that God has of his creation. I like the intimacy here. That God isn't just sort of setting things spinning. He's not just sort of architecting all of human history and writing this big story and disregarding the cares and concerns of the individual in the midst of the story, right? He sees us and he looks at us and he says here, it might seem slow to you. That seemingness, God is aware of. Have there been moments in your life where God didn't move the way you wanted him to or the way you thought he would where God didn't align with with what you thought he was like have there been times in your life we were praying for a thing and you feel like God is not paying attention to you at all and it felt like God was being really slow hey good news for you and me today God knew that there would be times when it would seem slow to us he sees you he's not unaware of that seemingness 
that in our perception and in our clocks, it will feel like God's not moving. That's why he gives us this verse. He says, write it down, make it plain, put it on tablets so people can read it and run with it because it's going to feel like I am absent. There are going to be moments where it feels like I'm not moving. There are going to be moments where it feels like I'm not hearing or that I'm not being faithful. But listen, my vision, he says, he gives us a couple of things here. The vision awaits its appointed time. He wants us to take comfort from the fact that what God has said he will do, he will do. But he has a clock. There is an appointed time that speaks to the sovereignty of God. I was reminded of Acts 17.31. Where it says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's just one example in the scripture of the fact that there is a day of judgment coming. We also know from Revelation 21 that there's a day of reconciliation. When all things will be restored, when everything will be redeemed, when it will all be made right. And he says, if in the midst of your daily life you feel like I'm not keeping my promises or judgment isn't coming. Or or the things that I've declared are not coming to pass. Remember, they are awaiting their appointed time. There's an appointed time that speaks to God's clock and not ours. Not only does he say say the vision awaits an appointed time, it says it hastens to the end. The word hastens there is the idea of huffing and puffing. It pants to the end. It hurries to the end, right? It's as eager as you are. All of human history is as eager to get to the end. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. What's he saying there? He's saying my vision... My word, my promises to you are true. It may feel like that I lied to you because of your clock versus my clock. It may feel in the midst of human experiences like either you misunderstood or like I do not keep my word. But listen, the vision is waiting for an appointed time and it will not lie. I am true. My vision is true. My promises are true. He wants to remind us that he's honest. Not only that, he says... If it seems slow, wait for it. Sort of common vernacular in our world today when people are telling a story and you can kind of see where it's going, right? And they go, wait for it, right? Wait for it. It's come, wait for it. Here God says, wait for it, wait for it. Isn't that exactly what Habakkuk is doing? So for all of the fact that last week we looked at the fact that it seemed like, you know, Habakkuk in some ways is trying to hold God accountable to who he believes God is rather than trusting in God to reveal more of himself, You have to absolutely credit the faith of Habakkuk to stand up on his watchtower and say, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see what God says and I'm going to watch to see how I respond. There is faithfulness in Habakkuk's willingness to wait. God says to us, if it seems slow, wait. In one sense, the essence of the faith he's talking about here is the essence of being confident to go, God knows better than I do, that he's outside of my timeline, and he's telling a bigger story than just my 45 years, or just your 20 years, or just your 75 years, that that my years on this earth are just one part of a much bigger story that God is telling. He says, I don't lie. There is an appointed time. I am sovereign. Wait for it. He knows that it might feel bad to us, but he wants us to be focused on who he is and what he is doing rather than how it seems to us. Okay, follow that. He wants us to stay focused on who he is and what he is doing rather than how it seems to us. Do you hear him saying, I get that it might seem slow to you, but don't pay attention to your seeming. Don't pay attention to your perception of it. Trust me. He says, If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. 
it will not delay. It's interesting that he says it will not delay because I think we, we sort of assume that delay and seeming slow are the same thing, right? Those feel like the same word. He says, no, it's not delayed. It's not delayed. It seems slow to you, but there is no delay. What's he saying? He's saying, he's affirming again what we studied a few months ago in John, that God is never late. He's not late on on the human history scale. He's not late in the course of the universe, but he's also not late in our individual situations. Although it may seem like God is late, God is always perfectly on time. Remember when, uh, when Mary and Martha reached out to Jesus and they said, hey, your buddy Lazarus, you love him, you care about him, he's very sick, probably gonna die, you should come. And it says, Jesus, knowing that he would die, waited two more days. You think it seemed to Mary and Martha like Jesus was late that day? You bet. What God is affirming here in Habakkuk is, no, I'm never late. What seems like lateness to you, what seems like slowness to you, is not in actuality a delay. Why? Because I am always on time. That's hard for us to get. It's hard for us to get. Why? Because we got our own clock. I was trying to think this week about places that are hard for me to wait. And I, just in sort of trying to illustrate this, I, I was reminded, this would be as no, no surprise to you, I was reminded of the DMV, right? Uh, my wife and I had appointments, appointments, we had appointments at the DMV on uh, the Monday after Christmas. So I don't know, it was like January or, or December 29th, I think, at the Fullerton DMV. And uh, we had appointments, set times we were supposed to go in there. They'd given us the things that's coming at whatever, 10, 15, to get your real ID. I don't know if you, just be aware, you got to get a real ID if you want to travel or a passport. This is just a public service announcement for me because I care about you. Uh, so we went in to get our real IDs and we go, it's a madhouse. There are, li- there are like 25 lines and nobody knows where any of them are going. There's like, there's a line out the door. There's a line over here. There's a line that way. The people that work there, number one, are hard to figure out who they are. There's all these counters and desks of the Fullerton DMV, but it seems like all of those people are working on a crossword maybe. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing. They seem very intent upon it, uh, but they don't seem very good at crossword. So there are lines, there are people in every seat of the waiting area. There's a lady in line behind us, and we're in like one mini line that eventually will give us access to a much longer line. Uh, we're waiting in line. There's a lady behind me, an older lady, who's on the verge of tears. Like, she's right on the verge of tears, and it's because she doesn't speak very good English, and she has no idea what's going on. She doesn't know if she's in the right line. She doesn't know where she's supposed to be. And the whole time I'm in there, even though I have an appointment, I don't, I don't even get up to the counter for my real ID you know, until like 20 minutes after my appointment time. The whole time, here's what's happening in my heart. I'm thinking, this is not run well, right? This is a poorly run operation. Like, I can see a bunch of people who are not very productive. These people don't seem to care about me. They definitely don't care about this older lady who's very sad. And there's a, there's a judging that's happening in my heart. You know what I'm saying? There's a part of me, as I'm standing in the, li- the line, looking at the inefficiency, as I perceive it, of the DMV that says, these people don't care about us. They don't care about what they're doing. They don't care about their jobs. They don't care about any of that stuff. And I don't, I don't know any of them, but I'm just assuming, because why? Because I'm frustrated I'm having to wait. I had an appointment, right? I'm frustrated that I had to wait, and, uh, and when we get up to the front of the line, my wife shows the lady her thing, and the lady says, uh, oh, th- this isn't a marriage certificate, or this isn't a marriage license, it's a marriage certificate. That won't do. You can't, you can't do it. And we've already been there a long time. And my wife's like, it's going to have to do, you know? And uh, she's like, well, you can go stand in the next line and see what they say over there, but you know what? You know? And, and eventually it worked. I got, my, I got my real ID. I'm happy to show it to you if you'd like to see it. Uh, my head is really small. My head's really, like an or- it's like a tiny little orange in the picture. I don't like that. But I started just as an exercise this week, uh, thinking about 
about my impatience there and about the waiting at the DMV and my frustration, both with the way it's organized, with the attitudes of the people, with the time it's taking. And, and I asked myself this question. I want you to do the same thing. I, I asked myself, I wonder if my perception of it would be different if the DMV was staffed with people I know love me. If the DMV was staffed with people that I know are loyal if the DMV was staffed with people, so just think, just for the exercise, think for a second about the people that you absolutely trust. Uh, they may be family members, they may be people in your close group of friends, they may be people that you've been walking life with for 40 years, they may be coworkers. I got a group of people uh, that I absolutely trust. Some of them are people that I worked with at Hume Lake, some of them are people that I serve and live with here, uh, family and whatever. If I started thinking, okay, what if I took all of the employees of the DMV and I replaced them with people that I have absolute trust and confidence in? The likelihood is that I wouldn't move any faster at the DMV, but I wouldn't be so frustrated, right? The likelihood is because there are a thousand people all trying to get their real IDs and their driver's license and their whatever else, they're trying to do all this stuff, there'd still be a bunch of lines, there would still be a lot of chaos, it would, there would still be people who were frustrated and what language barriers and all those things, but I wouldn't feel frustrated, you know why? Because I would be able to rest in the confidence that the people who were running it were doing their best, I know them. I know they care about me. I know they don't want me in this line. I know this isn't the best, uh, you know, I, I know that this isn't necessarily what I want, but I know them and I trust them. I believe in them. And therefore, it sort of takes the anger out of it, right? Why? Because I believe in the people that are running it. In our lives, what God is saying here is that there's, a, there's an ability for us to sometimes feel like he's being slow, but it's because we're forgetting that he's good. We're forgetting that he's faithful, we're forgetting that he is true, that there is an appointed time that he is honoring. He is holy, right? There's an appointed time, and there is a truth. And though it may seem slow, there is no delay. God is never late. God is never late. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance that all should reach repentance. God says if it seems slow. So there's instruction. I want you to write this down. There's expectation. I want the person who reads it with clarity to do something with it. And then there's encouragement. He encourages us and says, the way it seems to you might not be accurate. The way it seems to you might not be accurate. You have to trust me. And then he's going to give us a juxtaposition. In verse 4, by the way, probably the most famous verse in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, it's quoted several times uh, in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. Uh, uh, you'll recognize it. But he's going to juxtapose two different kinds of people. He starts that here in verse 4. He'll continue it through the rest of this chapter. We'll look at this, the second part next week. But here's the juxtaposition. He's just said, I want my vision to be plain and memorable. I want people to have access to it. I want it to be clear. So that when they see it, when the people read it and hear the calling of, of who I am upon them, that they'll move with it, that they'll carry it, that they'll share it, that they'll do something with it. And I want them to have it in, in plain words so that they'll carry it because this next season is going to seem slow. Even though it isn't, even though there is no delay, even though it's true, even though I keep my word, it will seem slow. So they're going to need to know what I have said and who I am. Make it plain so that in the midst of that, because I want them to fall on, on one side of the equation rather than the other. The, the first side of the equation, he gives us, he juxtaposes two different kinds of people. Verse four, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. This is the negative example. 
And, and again, the Hebrew here is weird, and so even as you're reading Habakkuk in English, it feels a little strange. He's just said, it will not delay, and then he says, behold, his soul is puffed up, and you're like, his who? Who are you talking about? What are you talking about? That becomes clear as we get further into this chapter. But who he's talking about here, uh, broadly, is the, pers- the person who is swollen or puffed up or stuffed with himself, with his own wisdom, with his own understanding, with his own selfishness. The word there that's translated uh, puffed up is the idea of swollenness or fullness. He says there is a kind of person with a puffed up soul. He's swollen, bloated, and stuffed with himself. Not just arrogant. The sentiment here is not just arrogance. It's not just somebody who's prideful, but someone who is filled up with wrong presumptions. Fat with wrong presumptions. You get the idea? He says there's a kind of a person who thinks they know how the DMV should be run, right? There's a kind of person who thinks they could do it better, who thinks that their clock is the only clock that matters. There's a kind of person who looks at what's happening and cannot trust the one who is in charge, right? And that's a person who is bloated or swollen with their own presumptions, fattened on their own presumptions, puffed up, right? Puffed up, swollen with themselves, And he says the result of that swollenness or that puffed upness is that their soul is not upright within them. That's the way that translated. The the idea there is of crookedness. Their soul is crooked. They're bent out of shape. That's probably my translation, right? Their soul is bent out of shape. I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He um, He says it's a person who is full of himself but soul empty. Full of himself but soul empty. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel soul empty? Do you ever feel soul empty? Is it, is it possible that, that you feel soul empty because you've been filling yourself up with the wrong stuff? He says there's a kind of person who's stuffed to overflowing, but they're stuffed with their own presumptions, their own ideas, their own wisdom, their own selfishness, and as a result, their soul is crooked and bent. It's twisted within them. By the way, that kind of soul emptiness is, is the kind of soul emptiness that in, in the lives of men and women leads us to spiritual death. To be full on ourselves and, and empty of God is to be separated from him. That's, that's, that's spiritual death right there. He says there's a kind of person who's fat on their own presumptions but soul empty. And then he juxtaposes it. And here's the part that's really famous that you've probably heard or seen in other places. He says, but, and here's where he's juxtaposing it, but as opposed to a person who's swollen with himself and crooked in soul or soul empty, the righteous shall live by faith. But the righteous shall live by faith. There's basically just three words in the second part of that verse, three Hebrew words. And the way it's written in the original language says, the righteous by faith shall live. The righteous by faith shall live. How many of you heard that before? You've heard that before? The righteous live by faith? Yeah, it's fairly common, right? And again, it gets quoted in the New Testament. But when we think about this juxtaposition, we think, oh, okay, it's, it's by faith that the righteous will live. Um, so, so that's meant to be the opposite. As opposed to living swollen on myself and stuffed with my own ideas and my own wisdom and my own understanding of how I think the DMV should be run or greater still, how I think the universe should be run and certainly how my individual life should be run. Instead of being stuffed with my own presumptions and empty in soul, there is another way to live, which is to live by faith. To live by faith. And that faith, when it talks about faith, the, the Hebrew idea of faith was not a, a series of intellectual ideas that you agree with, 
right? It wasn't about what, what you affirm doctrinally. It wasn't about what you know. It was about living a certain way. That faith was what drove the kind of life you live. That's why uh, when we look at the Old Testament and we, and, we, and we read about Abraham, it says that he heard what God said and he lived in accordance to that. And because of his faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Genesis Chapter 15, verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What's he trying to do? He's trying to say, I know how my life should be run, and you're not doing it my way. Behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. That's the same word there where it says believed. It's the same word that we see faith in Habakkuk 2. He believed the Lord and he, he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, this belief isn't just that Abram believed that God knew what he was talking about. It's not just that he believed there was a God. It's not just that he believed that, that, that God existed. It's that he believed that what God said would come to pass and his life changed because of that belief. There's movement involved. When, uh, when, when Moses looks at the people in Deuteronomy and accuses them of their faithlessness, he's not looking at them and saying, you don't believe the right set of things about the doctrine of God. He looks at them and says, when God called you to go into the promised land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9. When God called you to go to the promised land, you did not have faith, aka you didn't go. Right? That's what that means. When we talk about faith, sometimes we go, oh, there's all these different faiths in the world, right? All these different faiths. And it sort of starts to just equate into religion. Do you have faith? Oh yeah, I'm evangelical free or I'm Baptist or I'm Presbyterian or whatever. Faith is not an association. It's not a system of things you know about God. It's trusting in God that he has an appointed time, that he's sovereign, that he's good, that he's never late, that he does not delay, that he sees you and he knows your circumstance and he he will keep his promises. When we put our faith in him, it means our lives change. There's two different ways to live. There's a way to live that is to be swollen on yourself, stuffed to overflowing with your own ideas, confidence in you. But that way leads to a crookedness of soul, an emptiness of soul, a brokenness, bent and broken. There's another way where the righteous by faith shall live. By the way, there's two connotations here. There is absolutely a foreshadowing, which is what Paul will do in the New Testament. It's not just saying that, that the righteous by faith will live their daily lives. It is saying that, but it's pointing to what Paul affirms in Romans and Galatians, which is that it is only through faith in Christ that we can have life. So it's not just living in the ongoing, you know, ins and outs of our day, but it's true living in a spiritual sense. If our soul emptiness renders us spiritually dead before God and separated from him, it is our faith in Christ, our trust in the fact that he took our sin upon himself, that he died in our place, that he shed his blood, that he was risen from the dead and extends to us by his grace resurrection life. It's our confidence in the fact that he has promised that, that he does that, that he's capable of that, that he is God in heaven and there is no other. It's our confidence in him, our faith in him, that makes us spiritually alive. So it's not just the way we live day in and day out. It's the way we live. 
in the big sense. It's the only way life happens. What God is juxtaposing is a person who's gorged on selfishness, his own concepts, or the person who trusts that God has an appointed time, that God will not delay, that God is true, that he sees you, and that he will keep his promises. He says, write it down and make it plain. Put it on tablets so people will read it, and their lives will move in accordance to it because it's gonna seem slow to them. And they're gonna be tempted to stuff themselves to overflowing with their own wisdom, with their own ideas. But there's a better way. The better way is to believe. Not just believe about me, but believe in me. The righteous by faith shall live, both eternally and in the ins and outs of our daily life. It changes our perspective. It changes the way we look at our circumstances. In Romans chapter four, speaking still about Abraham, in Romans chapter four, verse 18, it says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. This is Abram again. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. They were written down. They were made plain. They were recorded, right? But for ours also, verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It says he... When Abraham was tempted to look at his own body and go, I'm an old man, I'm not having any kids. He looked at his wife and said, she hasn't been able to have any kids. He didn't count those things as what he wanted to fill himself up with. But instead he filled himself up with his confidence in the fact that what God said would happen. The righteous by faith will live. If there's a central theme to this book, if there's a central theme to our study of this book, it's this for us, that if we're going to be a people of confident expectation who radiate hope, we're gonna have to go on a diet. We're gonna have to go on a diet from our own wisdom, from our own watches, from our own intellect, from our own selfishness, from our own satisfaction. We're gonna have to stop stuffing ourselves with ourselves. Because all that leads to is a soul crookedness. It just leads to a soul emptiness. You feel famished in your soul today? It might be because you've been eating all the wrong things. But instead, the righteous live by faith. Faith is the key. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a trust in you, a fidelity to you, a confidence in you. We recognize that righteousness is not something we do, but it's something that is placed upon us because of who you are. That we are credited with your righteousness, not because we are righteous, but because we have faith in you. God, would you help us to be people who will look at what you have said and remember it, read it and run. And that in those moments in our lives where your clock feels slow to us, we remember that you've appointed a time that you are always true, and that you're never late. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.